What's good, people? Welcome to the Puget Sound Podcast. My name is Gary Nakanalua, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the Thunder from Down Under, Mr. Ryan Leaf. Say hello to all the good people out there. What's up, people? Thanks for tuning in. We've got an incredible episode for you today. We are joined by internationally known and recognized musician from the Puget Sound area, Andy Orozco. Andy, thank you for joining us and say what's up to all the good people out there. What's up, everybody? My man. We're going to start out by talking about what's in the news. Mr. Leaf, what has grabbed your attention here lately? Well, as I'm sure, like a lot of you tuning in on this, the the heavy news of both Sinead O'Connor and Tony Bennett has definitely uh, rocked the universe. I was actually just in Las Vegas this last week, so I, lo- I saw a lot of tributes around town just you know calling out one of the forefathers of that vegas front tony bennett um sinead o'connor of course you know i used to work in a record store when i was young and i used to play her album universal mother there was a song called fire on babylon yeah i don't know every every time that track was on it would just move me so when these tragic events occur it's one of the greatest displays of respect that a musician can give is covering a song right as a tribute so true i know that there was you know some it's foo fighters they did a tribute to Sinead o'connor brought out atlantis war set and there was also one tribute i seen from pink and brandy carlisle from Ravensdale. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Is it Ravensdale? Yeah, I live out there. That's my neighbor, man. (laughs) We've covered this in a previous episode. (laughs) I'm horrible about pronouncing things. (laughs) And uh, then speaking of of Brainy Carlisle, I don't know if y'all have seen this, but she has this special on HBO Max. It's Brainy Carlisle in the Canyon Haze live from Laurel Canyon. No, I haven't seen that. Really, really good. And then I know Tony Bennett had been mentioned. I think of Tony Bennett and I cannot help but think from that opening scene in Goodfellas. What yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, that's a good call. <laughs> You know, for me, Tony Bennett is synonymous with Vegas, and I'm sure that probably shouldn't oh, be his yeah. legacy. But you know, Lee, if you just came back from from Vegas, that must have been incredible. The amount of love and outpour that was going on over there. Definitely, I, w- I was seeing signage just rolling down the street, and people giving, you know, paying their respects to one of the fallen legends for sure. One segue to here, just to jump back on the Sinead O'Connor. It's awesome to see the celebrity respect there, but I've I've really seen a lot just across my own social media feeds, just a lot of individuals paying their respects around that Sinead O'Connor gave them hope as a fellow, you know, I've seen from being a fellow child abuse survivor to an inspiration to live one's actual truth of rebellion, even if they fit in or not. So... Um, she definitely symbolized during that period those those individuals that felt like they they didn't always fit in, and I think that voice is you're starting to hear that. Pretty neat to see that kind of impact. I think sometimes those artists, unfortunately, don't get to see that impact personally. 
during their lifetime or or recognize it because it you know it sounded like she was definitely operating from a place of pain so anyways just want to give some different perspective there i still remember my introduction to sinead o'connor came by way of mtv she took this song that was written by prince and i remember the first time i seen it going wow I'm not going to sit here and say that I followed her closely over the years, but nonetheless, I always had just mad respect for her and and her abilities and what she stood up for. Because there was, what was it, that, that time, was it, I don't know if it was Saturday Night Live, but where she called out the Pope holding up a, a picture of the Pope and rips it. Like, yeah, that was that's Henry. That's, that's when she got banned from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what, that's kind of what I remember. But like, like you said, that that iconic moment of of nothing compares to you is like well, that was legit. And that moment too, if you read further on it, it was actually in some ways directed at her abusive mom, who who was Catholic. Oh, wow. and. Okay. So, so there were definitely layers to that that resume, and you know she was a pretty fierce woman. And as you mentioned in your call out, and I've heard that numerous times throughout that she was she was ahead of her time. Which a lot of times those those artists, their legacy, you know, resonate for years when they're gone. Well, I'm gonna go a little bit light light hearted here as far as all the death stuff was that's deep and yeah in seattle we just had taylor swift come through and it's not like i'm a pop you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah right but i mean she blew people's mind and it 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 totally it it shocked me to know that the average person spent like 1200 bucks a piece just to go see her throughout the the time she was here in, in seattle like wow this girl's got it going on, and she just like you. You couldn't you can jump on social media and and not realize that she was in Seattle. And so on that note, the interesting thing is there was a study of the magnitude of what that concert did in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. It was the equivalent of causing a two point three magnitude earthquake. Oh, it's wow. I feel like this that seismic activity like that's crazy. I love that Andy tried to keep it lighthearted, but we'll, we'll... man, I tried. They didn't want to. Well, let's bring it into some crate digging right now. So, leave for you uh, any recent record store travels that you've gone through. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm super excited on a couple treasures I just got. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I just got back from Vegas literally this morning at like 3 a.m. And one of the record stores, it's a small chain if you're in Arizona or Las Vegas. And I think they might be Utah, I'm not for sure. But Zia Records, Zaya, however, Tomato Tomato. <laughs> As very back for nations. But it's a great record store. Anytime I'm in Vegas, I go there. And one I came across was a live recording of Stevie Wonder at the Rainbow Room, which was located in New York City. This particular recording was in 1973, and the lineup is pretty solid. So 
I'm actually going to open it after this episode and listen to that tonight. And for those listening, that's Gary pouring another drink. He's not in the restroom. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to clarify that. (laughs) The other one I picked up, I actually have picked up a handful of records, but there's a jazz artist. um, So this should ring true with you, Andy, as a key player. His name's Don Shirley. I don't know if either of you are familiar with him, but... No, I'm not. I actually... It's been a few years ago. There was a movie called The Green Book, and it it's a fantastic... Oh, yeah. Fantastic film, which is, you know, loosely based around Don Shirley's life, who was not only African-American, but he was a gay African-American when during the not too pleasant times when that wasn't something you could easily travel through the South and, and advertise. And so after that movie, I was just intrigued by him and picked up a few of his records. And I really enjoy his, his piano playing. He's um, a brilliant musician. So I picked up part of a concert series, volume five. So I'll be playing that this week to round it up. I had a, a reggae um, extravaganza and picked up a Bunny Whaler record called Rootsman Skankin'. Skankin'. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I like it. That's awesome, Leaf. I didn't know you were into jazz. What um, what other piano jazz artists are you into? Good question, Andy. One of my all-time favorite piano players. And actually, um, this is full circle because I picked up this vinyl set at a little record store in Las Vegas about two years ago, Art Tatum. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just genius level. And I I picked up a 13 LP set at this little um, shop called Record City there. Basically, a, a woman's husband had passed, and so his entire record collection, she wanted to donate it to a good place. And this uh, gentleman took on his entire jazz collection, and this was one of the gems in it. Apparently, it had nice. only been out for like two hours, so I, I was in the right place at the right time. It's it's all of him solo. It's called Solo Masterpieces, and it, it's a deep collection, man, 13 records to wade through. But I would say he's probably my favorite jazz pianist. Another player who's more soul, um, but he had some elements to his uh, playing that was jazz was Donny Hathaway. But how about you? Uh, man, I had, I just, I loved jazz growing up. And I would say uh, I, I had, I had two different loves. I had piano and I had drums. But um, on the piano side, man, Bill Evans, Oscar Peterson, Thelonious Monk, uh, Artists like that just drew me in. Bill Evans was man, that guy could that guy had chops. So I was I was always wrapped around those guys. Really, really cool artists. I love Thelonious Monk. I used to work at a record store, local one here, still in business, silver platters. One of my coworkers, his daughter's middle name is Monk, actually. He he would always nice. he was the one who turned me on to him and and yeah, his plan was deep. Well, Mr. Leaf, it sounds like you've had quite the journey in the record stores. Yeah, how about you, man? What's What's been the treasures you found recently? So the concept of pop-up retail isn't new, but it wasn't until I was out at Salty Sea Days recently in Everett, and there was this pop-up record store named Upper Left Records. 
I had the joy of talking to one of the co-founders. His name is Brooks out there. He knows all the stories behind all the records and all the crates. And so I picked up a couple, one being, and I know I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Chula Homa. It's, it's a Black Keys album, and it's basically a collection of their covers of Junior Kimbrough. Leaf, am I pronouncing that right? Because yeah. I know you're familiar yep. with him. With Junior, yeah. The, the way the story goes is that Junior was one of the key motivators for Dan Auerbach. We, we went through this the last episode. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember how it's pronounced, but but Dan, right, one half of the founding members of Black Keys, what got him to actually go, you know what, I'm going to go off and do this music thing. And then the other one is from my boy Sturgill Simpson. Those that don't know Sturgill Simpson, he is from Jackson, Kentucky, which is on the eastern Kentucky side of the house. It's his seventh studio album. And Andy, I think this will resonate with you. The album is called The Ballad of Dude and Juanita. The way the story goes, Sturgill wrote and recorded that album in a week. Okay, yeah. The album itself is super cinematic. And a lot of banjo on that one. Both y'all know I'm a big fan of the banjo. He's just so cool. He's as cool as the other side of the pillow, so... That was nice. it was a really fun experience for me to be out at Salty Sea Days, catch that pop up from Upper Left Records, and uh, pick up some some pretty cool albums. We're going to get to the goodness, the meat. We got Mr. Andy Orozco. You've been published in eight different countries, yeah, film and television, right? I mean, shows like Proof Positive, Thirty Rock. I mean, you got four albums on Spotify right now. We're very familiar with you as as a drummer, um, but we know you're an, a multi instrumentalist. So walk us through, you know, take us back to the beginning on what was your inspiration to even start playing piano, and and walk us through through the journey that that's led you to today, brother. Awesome. Um- so the, the family heirloom is this player piano. Now, for some reason, my family couldn't like pass down like a small ring or something. It has to be a thousand pound <laughs> piano that's absolutely worthless. But the thing is awesome, right? So it's actually sitting here in my living room and it's over a hundred years old. It was like, well, we got this piano. I'm, let's learn how to play it. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And so started taking piano lessons, obviously. And I got really good. And... I really dug ragtime. Scott Joplin was my oh, guy. Really? And I started, yeah, I started writing my own ragtime pieces. You know, I'm a big fan of 20s, 30s blues music and, and the ragtime craze during that. It's sort of a, a one, four, five type of progression, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, even a one, four, five is really a pop progression to a degree. But, uh, um, but ragtime in, in itself was so... It was so flashy and jumpy, right? Especially Scott Joplin stuff. I mean, your left hand is moving lightning speed back and forth, back and forth. And you got the melody playing in the hand. And I think that's what I enjoyed about it. And back when I was playing then, my my music theory chops were getting good. 
but the, I don't think they were good enough to understand exactly what I was playing. I was just memorizing notes on a sheet of music. And I remember I was slated to play on the Sears Tower for King Five. And all of a sudden, all this pressure got on me. And I was like, oh. uh, nope. Honestly, I think I was 10. Man, that is. I might have been. I, I kind of tapped out. And I was like, ah, I'm I'm good. And then um, and I ended up finding uh, jazz drums and. It, it all kind of coincided together, but it was it was an incredible journey as I was like learning drums, going through high school, all of a sudden getting in rock bands. The lead singer was a was a senior, right? And his name was Travis Brock. And he actually became the lead singer of Second Coming. It got a huge deal in back in the um back in the nineties. The dude's a beast. As I was a freshman thinking I'm nobody, and this dude wants me to play drums for him. We played for like the basketball games and stuff. We were called the Dirt Balls. It was sick. <laughs> we played like covers of Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, Tom Petty, stuff like that. But I really started to love music just because it just, it, it, not only did it gravitate towards me, but I just happened to be pretty good at it. You mentioned you moved into jazz drumming. What did that move look like? Good question. So, so at, at some point in time, I, it must have been middle school, they were looking for a drummer to play jazz drums. And at the time, the the director was like, anybody that plays piano probably would be good because as a pianist, you need to be able to utilize your right leg and both your hands at the same time. So you already have the coordination. Um, so I'm like, well, that kind of sounds fun. And then I instantly enjoyed it. Well, my dad was friends with... Uh, um, or he worked with and was friends with this guy, Jim Herskosi. And he was a bass player, a studio bass player on on the side, or he used to be, that he would back up like B.B. King. And so he had all kinds of of um, of like uh, of people that he played with. And so I started taking lessons from um, from uh, Jerry Garcia, not the Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, but Jerry Garcia, of the Seattle drum shop. He started the Seattle drum shop. Okay. Um, and I was like one of his only students. So I started taking jazz drums from this guy. And this guy is an absolute beast. The dude is <laughs> so awesome. And he was nice enough to let me come down and jam with not only him, but his entire jazz like ensemble as a, just a young kid. And that gives you all the confidence in the world. It's like, wait, I'm sitting here jamming with actual jazz musicians. So it's probably a little bit of luck and a little bit of confidence boost from these jazz greats going, hey, young kid, come on in. And they just treat you like, you know, they, they all have the the real book out, right? They could play any song in the real book. And they're just banging on it. It's just like, hey, kid, just jump in. And I jumped in and I held my own. And that right there was like, yes, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later when I realized, man, how jazz works versus classical music, right? Classical music, you play what is on that sheet. If you deviate from it, you are now a bad classical pianist, right? It just, <laughs> it, here's Mozart's piece, you play it. And if you play it perfectly, people will go, that's very good. Well done, well done. Jazz, they have they have suggested chords. Well, you're going to play an A minor here, um, a C and an F. Maybe, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll play pentatonic. Maybe you'll play Iona. You know, like, just pick something, but play it. And it was such a mind blow to me. Like, wait, we could play whatever we want in jazz, but you just have to follow, like, a loose 
version of the song, it was great. And it's like, okay, there's a lot of rules here that's obviously embedded in that. But what a cool way to play music. It's all feeling. You don't have to live by this standard of this is not only 4-4, but it's played at this this many beats, you know, all all these all these rules. Jazz is like feeling, man. It's like this is what's laid out. Go ahead. Let's play it and it'll be different today, different tomorrow, different the next day. All right, listeners, this interview with Andy was filled with so much goodness that in the interest of time, we decided to break it up into multiple episodes. So look for part two coming soon. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the Puget Sounds podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast from. Catch you on the next episode.